Good morning. We will have um, IV bags in the lobby after service with caffeine for you this morning, yes? Yes, because welcome to the day before the most non-productive day on the calendar. Did you know that? I don't know if you were aware of that, but that is a fact. It is true. The most non-productive day on our calendar is the day after daylight savings time. And some of you said, thinking, well, what do you mean daylight savings time? The time changed. That's why you feel the way you do. You don't know, right? Because now our phones change on their own, and so we don't have to worry about that. But tomorrow, they say that we're going to feel somewhat dulled, and our senses are not as sharp, and we're going to be very forgetful. And you're thinking, well, I feel that way most all the time, you know? Well, maybe you need vacation or something. I don't know what that means, yes. But, but it is somewhat of a fact. It is reality that it does affect us. It really does, yes. I read another reality this week. It's kind of funny. I came across it somewhere. And, and it's a quote, and it simply says that. Here's the quote. My mama always said, life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get, you know? So who said that? Does anybody know? Ah, very good. So here's the thing. If you're forgetful and if you're slow and if you are struggling, you know, to getting your thoughts together because it's daylight savings time, how did you come to the realization of what that was? How did you remember that, right? So that kind of takes away our, our excuse, maybe, the what? Yes. And, and so what, what I'm getting at is this, that that saying of my mama always said life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Is that really true? Yes, is that true? Is that really true? Because when we read in the book of John, which we're going to read in just a moment, John chapter 16, so you can grab your Bibles or device and turn there, John 16, and we start at verse 16 together this morning in our teaching, that, that is that really true that you're not, you never know what you're going to get? Because when you look at the book of John, oh, what John tells us is there's a lot of things that we know we're going to face in life. They said there's a lot of things that we know that we're going to get. Now, let me kind of give you an update of where we are when we get into John chapter 16. And it's this, that Jesus is just hours away from the betrayal. He's hours away from that of Peter denying him. He's hours away from this mock trial that he's going to suffer through. He's just hours away now from the lashing with the whip that is going to leave him in somewhat physically um, an unrecognizable state. He's very close to going to the cross at this point in, in time. And Jesus has been in, intensely teaching his disciples from that of the Passover meal that we talked about where he washes his disciples' feet. He's been intentionally and intensely teaching them. He's piling all these things on them. And he starts with talking about, well, opportunities for grace in their lives because he washes their feet. Oh, he speaks to Peter about his pride, doesn't he? He comes to Peter to wash Peter's feet. Peter says, ah, not, not happening with me, Jesus. And then Jesus says, hey, you're not going to have any part of me, Peter. And so he washes Jesus's, or he washes Peter's feet. So he talks about pride and all of that. And he redeems the role of the servant because simply the greatest among all of us is that to be a servant. He talks about loving one another. That is the proof of discipleship within our lives. And, and, and then he says that I will not leave you an orphan, but I'm going to send you the helper, the Holy Spirit to be with you in this life. And then he uses the metaphor of that of the vine and the branches. And what he says is this, 
That this is how the people of God look. Because the Jews have always thought that, well, the, the people of God simply was a nation. It was the nation of Israel. But he said, no, the people of God look like me and all my disciples. And that opens a great door for you and I in life. For those of us that don't get it right all the time, that we are the people of God. So what it says to us is when we produce a lot of sour grapes as being a branch from the vine, and that is Christ, oh, that he prunes us, but we have security in him. That we stay connected to that of the vine by being branches. And then he says this to his disciples. That you can't do any of this on your own. That without apart from me or without me that you can do nothing. So he's piling all of these things on them in these very few hours before that of his arrest and ultimately his crucifixion. So why so much teaching in such a short amount of time? Why so much? It, it reminds me of, you know, in, in college for me is that when it comes to the end of the semester or midterms, when that last week before those exams, that your professor, maybe he might have been like me, likes to tell stories, so he's told stories a lot during class, and he's never taught all the curriculum that is needed to take the exam. So that last week before the exam, they pile it on, man. He tries to cover chapter after chapter after chapter with you in order for you to be ready for exam. So is that what Jesus is doing? Is it that Jesus has not taught all the things that he should teach to them? So he's piling all of these things on these last few days or last few hours before his crucifixion. So I begin to look at the disciples and where they are. and said there has to be some clue in this, in how they're feeling and how they're dealing with these moments as to why Jesus is piling on all of this teaching in this short amount of time. And so I begin to read about the disciples at this moment while I realize this, uh, they, they, they feel defeated. They feel, I don't know if you've ever felt defeated in life or not, but this is what they, they're, they're feeling defeated in life. Have you ever felt like that the odds against you were insurmountable? Have you ever felt like, and I know maybe the second service felt like, feels like this, but you don't as being first service people, but yet the, that the world is winning and God is losing. I don't know if you've ever had that thought or not within your life, you know. And at the end of all this, who really wins? And can I push through all the pain of my life? Can I just make this kind of happen? Just kind of suck it up in my life and then move forward? And what's ahead for me in life? And I think that's what the disciples are dealing with as Jesus is talking to them about a lot of things that they really don't understand at this moment. And we know that they really don't come to an understanding of a lot of things that Christ teaches them until after the resurrection. And so when I begin to read these things as we go through John chapter 16 together for a few moments before the Lord's table this morning, that Jesus has promised them already. He promises them that he will not leave them as orphans. And he promised that to you and I, that he sends the Holy Spirit to us. But he also doesn't leave us clueless in life about what is to come. He doesn't leave us clueless in life about what is to come. That's why I said that life is not like a box of chocolates. That we do understand some things that are going to happen in our life because Jesus tells us that. And because of that, he reveals the loving heart of the Father. He doesn't leave you and I clueless about what this life holds in this world. That there are going to be hard times. Understand that. There are going to be hard times. You say, Mark, that's a, not the best way to start out a teaching on an early Sunday morning after we have lost one hour of sleep that you're going to tell us that. But it's the truth that he doesn't leave us clueless. He tells us those things that he doesn't just wrap life in this really neat box, you know, and, it, and it's all attractive and there's never any kind of, of struggle for us in life. That's not what he says. But he reveals how we live in a broken world without the world bro- breaking us is what he does. He reveals how you and I live in a broken world without the world breaking us in this life. And so 
the scripture says that we take heart in that, that he is so close to his uh, crucifixion that yet he begins to teach the disciples all of these things. And so chapter 16, verse 16, this is what he says. He begins by saying this to them, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. And I thought, that's such an interesting statement that he makes. Can you imagine having a conversation? All of a sudden he says, hey, a little while and you will see me no longer. And a little while and you will see me. And he kind of just lets it hang, you know, kind of deal. Like, what is he talking about? And so I wrote for a couple of thoughts in here. The first is this, that sorrow for a little while and then. And then what? Because they're confused about this statement. This statement, a little while, is used seven times in four verses. He uses it for emphasis, but every time he says it, I can just imagine their anxiety begins to rise. You know that well, What is he talking about? That he's revealing this huge moment to them that he wants them to understand, but they just don't get it. So why doesn't Jesus just speak plainly to them? He's talking about his death, that in a little while you, I'll no longer be with you, his death, but in a little while that I will be with you again, his resurrection. That's what he's talking about. But he doesn't talk plainly. He talks very figuratively to them. And I think that it causes them to question what he's saying. And that's the point. That's the point. I've often said to you that you can't, you know, you can't lead a horse to water and make him drink, but you sure can give him some salt and make him very thirsty. And, and so, right? And so the thing is that Jesus is giving him a little salt. He desires a conversation with him. See, God has always been about that intimate relationship with you and I. It's not just about giving us some information, but it's about relationship. It's far more than just telling them about what's going to happen in the future. No, because God could have said, hey, you know, straight up front, man, this is about my death and this is about my resurrection, but he doesn't do that. So what he does, he draws them into this conversation with them. And, and, and what I believe is this, that difficult experiences in life are less likely to shake your world if you know that they're imminent. That difficult, difficult situations and experiences in life are less likely to shake your world if you know they are imminent. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, hey, you're going to have some really tough times in a broken world in which you live. That's going to happen. Now, let me break something to you this morning that it would be breaking news, possibly. And that is that, here it is, you ready? that none of you in this room are exempt from that. Did you know that? Say, Mark, you don't have to tell me that. I know that. But I think that sometimes we live like that, that none of us are exempt from those tough times in life, that we're not. And so in light of that, life is going to throw you some things so you got to get prepared. And that's exactly what Jesus is teaching his disciples. Yes, because he doesn't try to stabilize their life or build a foundation for the joy of their life by telling them that everything is going to go their way in life, that their life is going to be without any sorrow in life. That's not what he does. But he tells them that there's going to be times in their lives that the sorrow of this world is going to be absolutely intense. It's going to be intense in their lives. But he says, hey, here's what's going to happen. It's going to come to you shortly But understand this, there's going to be an end to those kinds of things. And so what he does, man, I love this because he gets real about how you and I live. Yes, he gets real about you and how you and I live in life. And that realism about what we're going to face in life, it brings it brings stability to our joy. It brings stability to the joy within our life. 
Because Jesus says, hey, this is going to be short. It's going to happen. There are going to be tough times, but hang in there. It's not going to last forever. I'm going to die, but in three days that I'm going to come back from the grave and everything will be different in life. And when you take that over our lives and we lay that over my life, your life this morning, what I realize is this, that my life is made up of seasons. Man, it is. It's made up of seasons. And I'm not talking about winter and fall and summer and spring and all those kinds of things. But it's made up of moments in my life when there is sorrow. And it's made up of moments in my life when there is joy. And I think when we live life and understanding that our life is about seasons. Oh, there's some comfort in that. There's some comfort in that. But not comfort in the fact that we know that, well, the seasons may be short. And soon, man, I'm going to be out of this. you know, Or not the fact that, well, we're living for seasons to change because seasons don't last forever. Because that's all real three-inch theology within our lives. And we brush over this text if we really say this is what this is about. It's not that just I'm going to be able to survive this for a few more days and then this is going to be over. No, here's the thing. That we simply find peace and joy in the seasons of our life when we realize it is God who controls the seasons. It's God who controls those things. Uh, regardless of whether it's a day or whether it's 10 days. said, Mark, you don't understand. I've been in a season of my life for years. Well, maybe that's your season. But can I tell you that the strength that you need and the joy that you find, the stability that you find for the joy of your life and that season of your life is not that you're waking up every morning saying, man, today could be the day that this is over. No, it's waking up every morning realizing that God is absolutely in control of all things, even the season that you're in. Even the season that you're in, that God is in control. Well, Mark, is it, is, it, is it unspiritual for me to want out of what I'm in? No, it is. No. Can I tell you something? It's human. Yes, it's human that we are all human in this room and you have to deal with your humanity. You do. I should tell you to like reach over and, and like pinch the person next to you, but you might get slapped if you do that, right? No. Yes. But, but it, to realize that you're human, understand your humanity, that you're going to want out of these seasons in your life. I, the disciples are the great example of that. They're always saying to Jesus through this whole process, hey, when are you going to become king? Kick the Romans out of, of Jerusalem, and then we're going to be like, you know, we're going to be your cabinet, and, and we're going to run this country like it should have always been ran, and that's what they always thought Jesus would do, and so they want out of this situation. They don't want a crucifixion. They don't want any of that. They don't want a mock trial. They don't want to be questioned. They don't want to have to run and hide. None of those. They want out of this. It's natural for you and I as, as being human to want out. It is. But what I realize is this. What brings stability to my joy in the moments of sorrow of my life It's not that I'm waiting for this to be over. It's not that I'm thinking that three days and this is up. It's the realization that God is in control. God is in control. I wrote in my journal this week as I've talked about, I I, I journal about sorrow and and struggle. and, And I wrote this that we live in, not through the seasons of our lives, realizing that there is purpose. And I think what we try to do is we try to live through them. Man, if I could just survive this, you know? Boy, if, if... I don't know. If, if I can just get these kids out of my house, if I can just raise them, you know, and get them out of my house, send them off to college, give them a job, get them married or whatever, and if I can just survive this, then I'm going to be absolutely wonderful on the other side of this. And what we find ourselves doing is living through seasons, or living, living, try to, living through the seasons of our life, instead of realizing that we live in the season of our life, that God is doing something very deep 
underneath the surface of our life that sometimes we cannot see because he's in control. He's in control. Can I read to you from the book of James? Thank you. James chapter 1, verse 2. If we're going to talk about this of seasons in life and suffering, then you have to go to the book of James because it's perfect for that. James chapter 1, verse 2. Can it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials? By the word trials, you can write the word suffering of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And then he throws this verse 5 in. It's kind of odd. It doesn't even seem to fit in all of this. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Can I make a super duper um, unpopular statement? Let me drink first, okay? This is water, if you wonder what it would. People always ask me, what are you drinking up there? I'm not drinking coffee. I'm drinking water. It is exactly. And so here's an unpopular statement. Here it is. Suffering. I think it's in your notes, is the pathway to maturity and the realization of our need for God. That is super unpopular. It is. Yes. You, you will not win friends and influence people with that statement. You're not, if you wear a t-shirt that says that, yeah, people are not going to be drawn to you at Starbucks and say, dude, I love that shirt. Where did you buy that? That is amazing. Can I have one of those and my whole family wear that? That suffering is the pathway to maturity and the realization of our need for God. It is not. Why? Because in life, how do you grow? That's it. In life, how do you mature? Have you not, you know, have you not grown in your life in the moments when you fail, when you fall and you stumble? Or, you know, has growth come to you, whether it's spiritually or intellectually or physically? Has it come to you just because you're nailing everything and you're getting everything right in your life? And that's not true at all. No, you learn by thinking that you're right and then discovering that you're wrong. That's how you learn. Isn't that right? Yes. Oh, that's how my kids, well, that's how your kids learn. That's how you learn as an adult. That's exactly right. A.W. Tozer, in one of his books, he wrote, and I quote, I've quoted this before. It's such a powerful quote. It says, nature's wonders follow the plow. That there has to be this moment in my life and your life when that ground of my life is plowed up. It's got to be turned. If there's going to be fruit of joy, and if there's going to be any fruit in my life, uh, that of maturity and hope in my life, then the ground of my life has to be turned. And the only way that the ground of my life is turned is when I'm not getting it right at times, when everything is not going my way, when I'm not nailing it, when not everything is falling into place in my life. That's the moments when the ground of my life is turned. Now, I'm not a farmer. Okay, my, my extent of understanding farming is pulling weeds in my yard and mowing the grass and trimming the shrubs. That's what I do, right? That's what I do. So I'm not a farmer. So I don't plant things and they grow and, and I don't do all those things. But I do realize how that works in my own personal life. And that is that when I'm getting it right, you know, and seemingly when things are going my way, that I'm not pressing into God at those moments. Because why? Because I'm thinking I'm the one that caused everything to go well in my life. And so that's what I'm not doing. And that is exactly why that James puts this part in here, verse 5, where it says, if you lack wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously. So when things are going well in my life, I'm going to take credit for that. I understand that. My heart is not pressing into God. But when I'm suffering and when there's moments of pain within my life, those are the moments when I press into God the greatest. So have you ever thought, here's the thought, here it is. I just want you to contemplate, think, kind of roll this around in your brain for a moment, okay? And, and here, here is the thought, 
It, can you roll things around your brain? I don't know, you know, but I, I just have this, because if that means it's hollow, and I don't know, but that's another story. But the thing is that, that to, to contemplate this, this thought that possibly the season that you're in right now in your life is actually part of God's plan for you. Wow. I should sigh again. Right? Deeper. <laughs> I'm going to hyperventilate and pass out if I keep doing that. So is it possible? Wow, it's so contrary to a lot of things that we hear, isn't it? Yeah, it is so contrary. But yet when I go back to John, the book of John, our teachings through the book of John, I realize that those moments are truly part of God's plan for my life. They, they really are. When those moments... When things are just not going the way that they, they should go. When I feel like I'm stuck in the middle of life. When I thought I had it right and I discovered I had it wrong. That God is really pressing into my heart and in my life. He's turning the ground of my life and I'm pressing into him. And, and so at that moment, man, I'm going to trust God with everything that's in my life. That's how, that is not how we respond. That's not often how we respond. It's not how the disciples respond. No. Because I'm going to read verse 17 in a moment because they really want some answers. He says, hey, here's the thing, you know, uh, from a little while, you're not going to have me. And, and then you're going to have me in a little while. And, and they really want some answers. And that's okay to want answers from God. And there's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely, there's nothing wrong with that. Because I think some of you are sitting here this morning and you're in the middle of this moment of pain or sorrow or things are not going well with you. And you really are looking and searching for reason. Can I tell you that's okay? That's all right. Somebody might tell you, oh, you just trust God and stop asking God for, for, for understanding into where you are. And, and I want to tell you, if that's the truth, then, then we should not read the next few verses we're going to read. And here's what he says in verse 17. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. A little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about, they say. And Jesus is hearing this conversation, and Jesus knew that they wanted to ask. Beside the word ask, I would want you to write the word seek. Because I think it's a better word that they use there, to be used there, because it's a greater level than just, hey, I'm just wanting to know some information from Jesus. No, but they're wanting some understanding. I tell you, it's okay for you to pray for understanding when you're in those moments of sorrow in your life. And Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to him, is this what you are asking or is this what you're seeking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. So my second thought and when I'm reading it to read these verses was this. Where are you seeking for answers and is this seeking all on you? To whom are you seeking for understanding in your life about where you are this morning? What are you looking for? Where are you going for information and understanding about all of this and the seasons that you're in? Because the disciples, they want some clarification, but they don't ask Jesus. They ask one another. They ask one another. Jesus is speaking in this figurative language. He's talking in code to them, and they can't understand what he's saying. Listen, but understand this. Jesus never speaks a harsh word to them about talking to one another. It's okay for you and I, as brothers and sisters, a member of faith family, it's okay for you and I to simply have discussions among us about what God is doing in our life. It's okay for it. There's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. No. But Jesus does point out the fact that they really want to talk to him. No. Later on, he refers to prayer in this narrative also. 
Yes. So what do you do in those moments of sorrow? What do you do in those moments of pain in your life? You just man up, square your chest, put your heels together, and you push through, and and you're just going to trust God. Can I tell you that it's okay for you to ask God for understanding? It's okay. He's not offended by that. It's like, I don't want to bother God. He's too busy kind of deal, right? No, he's not. He's, and he's not offended by you asking that question. Because in fact, he encourages his disciples at this moment to ask, him, ask the why question for their understanding of what is going on within his life. In their life. The word seeking is powerful there. Yes, and when I begin to, to read this and I realize that that word for asking is actually the word seek, then, then my mind goes to the book of Jeremiah. Man, and, and maybe you've heard this before, but it's Jeremiah 29 and 13 that you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. So I'm thinking, so if I'm just going to seek God, then everything is going to be okay in my life. If I kind of push through this and I'm seeking God and I'm doing what God has asked me to do here in this condition of finding him, if I'm just going to seek him, then, then God is going to rescue me. He's going to pluck me out of this situation in life and everything is going to be fine. And the answer to that is no, that's not the way it works. Because if that's the way it works, then God has left us up to to our own ways to, I love the term white knuckling, you know, I use it all the time. And, and so that we white knuckle, that we work our way and push our way through this by this condition of just seeking him. And, and when you read this in the book of Jeremiah, what I realize is those in, in Jeremiah, that, that they're in exile in Babylon. And can I tell you, Babylon is not a place where the Hebrews go for vacation. They're, they're imprisoned. Understand that. that, that this, this, is not, this is not going to the beach, but they're imprisoned. Things are not going good with them. So if you read this and you don't really sit down and think through what God is saying to you, then all of a sudden we think, if I just meet this condition, I seek God, then everything is going to be good in my life. Everything is going to be good. If I just move toward him, then... I'm going to be out of this situation. And some of you, man, you've, you've tried that. Yeah, you, you've really tried that. And, and, and you're still here asking the same questions. Yes. But you have to read that second part of that verse. And then verse 7 gives us some clarity in a moment. But it says, when you seek me with all of your heart. This is, this is more than just words. This is more than just you meeting this spiritual condition. Oh, that I'm going to seek God. That all, everything is going to be fine with me. But this has to be a matter of your heart. Understand, it's more than this meeting condition. In fact, verse 7 says, and it's not on your notes. It's not on the screen. But it says this, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord. God gives us the heart that we need to seek him. You see, I think we think very mechanical sometimes in this whole process. Especially when we're under pressure. I mean, if I just do this, and if I just do that, then everything is going to be good. And if I just seek God, then God is going to come to my rescue. He's going to pull me out of the middle of all of this. And, and then all of a sudden, I'm on the other side of this. And, and everything is going to be wonderful. And what I realize is that you have to start with really why we seek God. And that is that God gives us the heart to seek him. And, and I think that is so powerful. That all of, this, all of this seeking God and asking God, it's all lavished in grace and love and mercy. Uh, because... You know, we don't get it at times. And, and what we realize that all this starts and ends with God. This is not about you and I just being mechanical and doing something so God responds to us. That's not what this is about. 
But what I realize in my under, desire to understand God, in the middle of the pain of my life, in the middle of the sorrow of my life, that the first work in all of our lives is always grace. The first work in all of our lives is always grace. It's not obedience. Think about it. Even before you came to Christ that very first time, what was the first work in your life? Well, I got up and I moved to the front or I, I, whatever you did or however you responded. No, no. Can I tell you, before that ever happened, there was grace working in your life. Understand that. Yes. So in the moment when the pressure is on in my life, when the pain of the sorrow has hit me, when those moments come that Jesus said will come within my life, that I just can't say, oh, here's the deal. I'm going to seek God, and then everything else is, is going to be fine after that. You have to start with the heart. You have to understand that this is all a work of grace within our lives. And because of that, what I realize is this. Yes, I seek Him, and yes, I look for understanding, but it doesn't always mean that God is going to pluck me out of the middle of that moment of sorrow. Because He's in control. It's about Him. It's not about me. It's not about me pushing the right buttons, saying the right things, quoting the right scriptures. It's truly about his work in my life. The very heart to seek him is a gift from him because this all starts with him and this is all about him. When I look at my issues in life through the lens of that, I see them a bit different. Can I read on? Verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And then he says, verse 21, when a woman is giving birth. Now, understand he uses a metaphor here about childbirth because it lines up extremely well with what happens on the cross. Because what is born out of pain upon the cross? Our deliverance. So it's a a very powerful parallel. And so when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because of her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. I underline that no one, no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father. See, he talks about prayer. In my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and it will, you, you will receive that your joy may be full. The third thought I had when I was going through all this is that God brings to us indestructible joy. In the metaphor of that of the agony and the anguish of childbirth. Yes. Hey, a great thing about being a pastor is this, that I get to be around uh, a lot of newborns when, when they're born, you know, kind of come into this world. And, and, and you guys are a very prolific group, and I appreciate that. We really do. Yes, yes, keep it up, okay? Whatever it takes, keep it up. Yes, I'm excited that Brad and Marcy, you know, they're, they're having a little girl, and that's so exciting for us, right? So keep it up, guys. We want a house full for you, absolutely. And, uh, and, and so I have this opportunity so many times to be in the waiting room with families. Uh, over the years, I've had that opportunity to be in waiting rooms, you know, waiting for that announcement for the dead to come out and say, he's here or she is here kind of thing, you know, and you wait with this great anticipation with a family, and you're talking about, man, 
uh, even even before the days of we knew the gender, you know, it was a real surprise kind of thing. And and so I was sitting years ago, not Hope Fellowship, but many years ago, I was sitting in a waiting room and waiting for the father to come out after the birth of their child. And, and so I look up and here he comes and he's coming down the hallway and we stand and we're looking. And I noticed something is very odd about him. True story. I noticed something is very odd about him because, you know, it's, it's back in the day when we did natural, ch- we did. I take that back. Okay. <laughs> Women did. That's a dangerous thing I just did. Okay. I apologize, please. No pitchforks and torches, okay? Now, here's the thing. Yes, and I see him coming down the hall, and it's the days when you wore scrubs. I don't know if you still do that or not when the man is in there, but he wore scrubs, and the scrubs have a little pocket on the front of it, and, and I noticed that the pocket had been torn down, and his chest was exposed. I could see that from him, right? Right? And, and, and the closer he got to me, I noticed that it was, the pocket was torn down, the chest was exposed, and I could see there were scratch marks on his chest where it was exposed. And I looked, and I saw fear in his eyes. I, I really did. And he said, the baby's not here, it's a little while longer. And I said, are you okay? And he said, yes. But she keeps saying to me, this is all your fault. You know? That somehow during labor, she's reached up and found the pocket on his scrubs and she's torn them all the way down his chest is what has happened. And she's left scrape marks on that. And, and I thought, oh, Lord, thank God I'm a man. I, I, I thought exactly what I thought. Yes, because I give so, so many props to women. You're so much powerful and we are than men. We're just a bunch of wimps. But I, I understand that. And Jesus uses that illustration about childbirth. Jesus is the only man that could ever preach a sermon using the illustration of, of childbirth and women listen to it. I mean, I'm serious. He's the only guy that could ever do that. Because if I do that, you'd be sitting there, there going, oh, snap. He, know, he has no idea what he's talking about. What, what is he, what is he, why is he even using that? Yes. What I learned a long time ago is, men, you should, never, you should never equate anything in your life with childbirth. You should never do that. That is an absolute mistake. Yeah. So I, some guy said, well, I had kidney stones before, and that's like I said, never go there again. You, that's dangerous for you. If you, you know, guys, if you ever want to get married or stay married or live the rest of your life not impaired, then you should never do that. You really should never do that. No. But Jesus is not any man. He's the Son of God. He is the incarnate Christ. He is the sainter of all of creation, and he is the giver of life, so he can do this. And when I first read this, my first thought was probably somewhat of a very fleshly thought. My first thought in the process of why did you use the metaphor of childbirth is my first thought, well, it's just that you keep your eye on the prize, and so once you see the prize come and it's the child, you know, you just push through all the pain, and then all of a sudden the memory of the, the pain goes away because you have kept your eye on the prize. And I said that because that's true the cycle of our life. If I find myself in a moment of sorrow and pain, what do I do? I push through those moments. I do. God has given us a lot of strength as humans, so I push through that moment, and I always keep my eye on the prize. What's the prize? And the prize is this, that I'm going to be out of this at the moment, at some moment. I'm going to be on the other side of this, and there's going to be joy in my life, and that's the cycle of life. And what I find is you and I live in and out of that cycle all, all of our lives. But what I understand Jesus is teaching me here is actually this, that the labor pains don't just precede a child. But the labor pains actually produce a child. And that's a whole different way in which we look at it. 
Because it's not just the baby follows the pains of labor. No, the baby comes as a direct result of the pain of labor. And what I realize is this, the joy that God is building in my life, this joy, this indestructible joy that no one can take place, take, take from me. Listen, understand this. It's not just something that I anticipate at the end of sorrow. What I realize is this, that God is building that indestructible joy within my life in the very middle of the pain. So joy is a product of the pain of my life. Does that make sense? I want you to get that this morning. Because I think that helps you to understand why you are where you are this morning. Why are you walking the path that you're walking? Yeah, because the cycle of life is that if I can just push through these moments of my life, then there's going to be joy at the end of it. So I keep my eye on the prize. But in the reality of that, we almost discount the pain of our life and the worry and our, our the 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 sorrow of our lives, we discount that. I want to tell you, there's purpose for those things in your life because what God is doing, He is building within you in those moments of pain, indestructible joy. And you're thinking, man, I, must, I, sh- I, I should be the most joyous person on the planet, right? Yes, yes, because you don't understand the pain and the, and the sorrow and the things that I've experienced. And, and what I realize is this, we, the, the greatest illustration of that is the cross, is it not? And I, I alluded to that for a moment, that through the pain of the cross, the result of that, what? The result of that is our deliverance. So if you take that and lay it over our lives, then that what I realize is the result of the pain of our lives and the sorrow of our lives, the situations and the circumstances as we walk through and God walks through those with us, that the result of that is indestructible joy that no one in this world can take from you. And those are not my words, but those are the words of Christ. Oh, I remember when Reba, I, re, I remember when Reba came, came to me after our first child, Chadwick, was born. And, and, and she said, let's sit down and talk. And I thought, well, you know, what, what are we going to talk about? And she hatched this crazy idea that we're going to have another one. You know, she did. She did that. Yes. And you know what my first thought was? My first thought was, do you remember what happened the last time we did this? Do you remember? Yes. But she didn't remember. No, she doesn't. That's beautiful. I think that's powerful. Because the joy, you know, the joy... In childbirth, and I'm talking about something I only know academically and because Jesus decided to talk about it. That's the only reason I'm talking about it. But the joy that, that simply is experienced, even by the mom, is birth. It, it's simply brought about by the pain of childbirth. Because I want to tell you something. If I'm birthing human beings into this world, there's going to be one, and I'll know better the next time. Trust me, yes. And it's not going to happen again, ever. He takes our sorrow and he transitions the very sorrow of our life into joy. That's a powerful thought. So I challenge you this morning as we get ready to pray. I challenge you today to take a pause in the middle of the cycle of life. What is the cycle of life? Right now, life is kind of, you know, the, I call it the, 
the sucking meter kind of deal in life. You know, we have one of those, right? And then there's a red mark over here on the right where life really sucks right now. You know, and then all of a sudden it comes back to the middle at times and it drops back down to a real low level. That, that, that what I say to you is to take a moment in the middle of your suffering, your challenges of life, to realize that God did not create you to just survive these moments so you can experience a little joy at the end. I think that that kind of theology is exasperating and it, it drains the life from us. It, it leaves us truly with a joy that is not indestructible, but a joy that can be eroded by a word or a conversation or a moment. But to take a moment to see those cycles in your life, because we all have been there, right? And some of you in this room are there today. I'm just living for a little relief. Man. You say, Mark, are you better than than us? No, been there, done that, and I'll be there again. But to take a moment to realize that even in the middle of your pain, your suffering, wherever you are, your loneliness, that the pain that you're in is the very thing that produces indestructible joy in your life. In verse 29, the disciples said to Jesus, I I, I love this conversation. His disciples says, ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. It, it's so very relevant. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, Do you believe? Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. See, he, he brings us back to reality. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. He's told him that when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone, yet I am not alone for the Father is with me. And then he says these words in verse 33, which are absolutely astounding. I have said these things to you. Think about all the things that we've read this morning, that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation, that life is not a box of chocolates, but we know that we're going to suffer at times. And the reality of knowing and knowing who controls all things brings us peace. And he said, but take heart, I've overcome the world. When I read that, take heart, I have overcome the world. What that said to me is this. That said to me, God spoke to me, I think, and said to me, Mark, the world never gets the last word in your life. The world never gets the last word in your life. And for me, that said something because what that does, 
that builds into my heart and my life a joy that nothing can touch and nothing can take it. Because God gets the last word. God gets the last word. So for a moment, would you bow your heads? For a moment, take a pause in your life. To look into your own heart and your own mind today of how you are living those cycles of life, how that you are just pushing yourself through the tough moments and then praying for the end to come and then enjoying a little relief oh, until the next moment comes. Because what God wants to do is transition the lens that we see life through today to that of a lens of that God uses the very pain and the very sorrow and the struggles of our lives to create the joy that is indestructible. That joy is more than a moment of relief at the end of a tough day. But joy is something in our lives built out of the pain of our lives that nothing can touch. So look at your life today. How do you see it? And how do you see those moments in your life? Father, today we thank you for your word and we thank you how that you bring us to those points of decision, to those moments of our lives where we have to deal with the reality of who we are and where we are. And so, Father, your word has been extremely real to us this morning. And so, Lord, let us act on it, not just walk away from this place and not do anything about it, but yet let us act on it and may it change our hearts and our lives today. And Father, we open our heart to you this morning. That we would see our situation in light of what you're doing in our hearts and lives. Thank you for your goodness in our life, God. Thank you that the pain on the cross results in our deliverance and our forgiveness. So, Father, as we come to the table this morning, we celebrate that. As we partake of the elements, God, that of the juice representing your blood, which washes away all of our sins, and, and the bread that was broken for our bodies. God, that you would bring us to a point to remember that the very joy in our lives and the salvation of our lives our very existence was bought with pain yours and Father we celebrate our deliverance today in you thank you Father for your table for these elements this moment to really look at our own lives the cycles of our lives and to see those things with a new lens this morning and so Father we thank you in your name 